Well, we have come this morning to our finale, part eight of Purpose, Pillars, and Foundation of Kerrville Bible Church. And we started on uh, the first Sunday of September, and uh, here we are into November for the season finale. I mean, eight parts is like a season, and I hope that you have had the chance during these eight messages to memorize what's on that screen, to just emblazon that onto your brain and your heart as you think about your own life and wake up each and every day to remember that your life is built on believing prayer and biblical preaching, in other words, prayer and the Word that connects you to our triune God. And then growing out of that are these four pillars, passionate worship of Christ, personal walk with Christ, sacrificial work for Christ, and a loving witness to Christ. Resting then on those four pillars, supported by those four pillars, we come to our purpose. We come to our mission. We come to our reason for very existence. Why do we have, as Toby said, air in our lungs? Why is our heart beating? We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. A singular purpose and a singular means by which to best fulfill that purpose in this age. So today is our finale. Our foundation is our triune God through word and dependence upon Him in prayer. Prayer is a barometer of our dependence upon God. And if we are practicing these four pillars, making disciples takes care of itself. And if we are making disciples of Jesus Christ, we will be glorifying God. It's not something extra we have to try to do. It will be the natural result. So we started with God in the foundation and we end with God in the purpose. And God is all through the structure. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. So say it with me. We've been we've had a good warm up this morning on some on 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 reading together. So say the purpose with me. The top of the structure. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't exist to make disciples by glorifying God. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. There is a huge difference. One is God-centered, the other is man-centered. One has the right thing at the center of the universe, and the other has the wrong thing at the center of the universe. Today, by way of review, I want us to view this structure through the lens of Jesus Christ. Has it occurred to you that Jesus earthly life is a perfect example of our purpose, pillars, and foundation in flesh and bone. Has it occurred to you 
that this was His life illustrated in the structure of a building. We have illustrated it that way, but we could illustrate it simply with Jesus. His life and activity, His heart and purpose, His attitude and His very existence while on earth exemplifies everything that is on this structure. And I want you to see that this morning. I want you to see Kerrville Bible Church, Purpose Pillars and Foundation through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. His foundation for life and ministry was believing prayer and biblical preaching. In other words, His foundation was prayer and the Word. Jesus Christ taught about prayer. He modeled prayer. He told parables about prayer. He would often, the text tells us in the Gospels, slip away into the wilderness to be alone with God in prayer. Here is the God-man, the anointed one filled with the Holy Spirit from the very moment of His conception, and yet He shows you and me that He walks by dependence and faith in His Father. He demonstrates a life of believing prayer and calls us to that kind of life by His very example. And what about the Word? Well, cut Him and He bled Bible. Put Him in a wilderness... Take away food and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Tempt Him by the devil Himself. And Deuteronomy comes out. The Word of God comes out when He was squeezed in that moment of temptation and testing. And then the everyday flow of His life, He constantly referred to Scripture. He would say over and again, Have you not read? With the assumption that the religious leaders had read. Jesus would refer to Moses, Jonah, Adam and Eve. He would speak of David and Solomon and the Queen of the South. He would refer to the temple. He would speak of the Sabbath. He would refer to the law and the prophets. The living Word was saturated with the written Word. Cut Him and He bleeds Bible. No one has ever built his life on the foundation of prayer and the Word like the One who is our foundation. Amen? He exemplifies this to us. And so go and do likewise. Beloved, go and do likewise. Build your life on God, not man. On the rock, not sand. Storms are coming. The wind will blow and crash against your house. And all that will matter in that day is upon what foundation did you build? Was it rock or was it sand? Praying, Bible-saturated believers are strong believers. Vibrant believers. Maturing believers and multiplying believers. It all starts with prayer and it all starts with the Word of God. And then Jesus, upon His foundation of His life, these same four pillars rested. He lived out these four activities, did He not? In reference to and in relation to God His Father. So let's fix our eyes on Him this morning. Number one, Jesus passionately worshipped the Father. We see this in John 17, for example, where in the only time in all of the New Testament 
We see the words, Holy Father. And they're coming from the mouth of Christ. And it's a prayer of John 17, His high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, Oh, Holy Father. No one has ever said those words with more understanding of what they meant than Jesus Christ. That is worship. That is passionate worship. He would say in Matthew 11, out loud in prayer, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them unto babes. Yes, Father, for it was pleasing in your sight. Folks, that is passionate worship of a sovereign God and Father. Jesus would pray at the tomb of Lazarus, Father, I thank you that you heard me. This is passionate worship. We can take the structure down from here on out. Thank you. And it was Jesus, was it not, who taught us how to pray. And when He taught us how to pray, we were to begin our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be Thy name. Set apart is Your name. Holy is Your name. Unique is Your name. He taught us in the model prayer that we begin with passionate worship of His Father. Beyond all of this, He attended the Jewish festivals. He sung the Psalms at the temple. Think about that. Your Savior stood at the temple with the people of God and He sung the Psalms in worship to His Father. He attended synagogue every week for teaching, worship, prayer, and fellowship. As we are commanded in Philippians 3 by Paul, Christians are commanded to worship in the Spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. So He did. He worshiped in the Spirit of God. He did everything in the Spirit of God. And He put no confidence in man. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a learner of Jesus, if you want to follow in His footsteps and and, and let Him lead you by example, then worship God every day of your life. And worship God every Lord's day of your life with God's people. You're commended that you're here. As I've said before, God's people should be gathered together every Lord's Day. Should not miss if it is at all possible. And so we look to Jesus if we want to see someone who passionately worshipped God. Number two pillar is our personal walk with God. And I simply ask you this question. If Enoch walked with God... What can we say about Jesus? Oh my. He spoke only what came from the Father. He did only what the Father showed Him. He daily communed with Him who is holy as only the Holy One of Israel could do. You talk about a walk with God. That's Jesus Christ. He is the Psalm 1 man. He depended on God for everything. Everything. The last Adam, you see, had no sin, no sin nature and no sin in practice. No sin to separate him from his father. They were tight. They were close. They were one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. 
That's how close his personal walk with God was. The lesson for you and me as we think about Jesus walking with God every day of his life, the lesson for us is this. It's very important when we think about our purpose as a church. It's this. Before you can be a disciple maker, you must be a disciple. Jesus modeled it for us. He was a disciple of God the Father. He was a follower of God the Father. He was a learner from God the Father. He passionately walked with God. The disciple maker is always first disciple. We cannot give away what we don't have. We cannot lead someone to a place we've never been. We cannot introduce a Savior we do not know. So no one can make a disciple who isn't first a learner himself or herself. Now his personal walk wasn't just vertical in nature. It also affected the horizontal of his life, did it not? His personal walk included honoring his parents. That's part of a walk with God. He honored his mother and his father. Even though he was the very son of God. His personal walk would have included working hard in a vocation that God called him to until he called him into permanent and public ministry. He worked hard and he worked honest as a carpenter. Faithful. He loved his neighbor as himself. All of this is part of his walk with God. He kept his promises. He kept his word. He was a faithful, godly Israelite among his family, among his neighbors, even submissive to his earthly parents as a child. Like everyone who walks with God, he was also greatly rewarded in the end. And so the message of his life would be to you and me as disciples this morning is to walk on. Walk on, believer. Your reward in heaven is great. Walk on like Jesus, no matter what. Church, press on into the Lord because great is your reward in heaven. He shows us that as well. Thirdly, if there was ever a person who was steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, it was the Lord. Was it not? This is his life. Here's what he said one day. He said, my father is always working, and so I am always working. You need to know this morning that the Protestant work ethic did not begin with the Reformers. It began with the Redeemer. He, he models the work ethic that he would want to pass on to you and me. His public ministry was a dynamo of activity. Constant movement, preaching, teaching, praying, healing, and all of this against a backdrop of opposition. An opposition that in the plan of God would lead to His greatest, most sacrificial work of all, right? It is that opposition which is the backdrop of the sacrificial work that has you and me here this morning. Apart from that work, we aren't even here. We don't even care. We don't even exist as Christians. This is an amazing thing to me. But we need to understand that he was not defined by his work. He was defined by his father. His work flowed from his identity. In the Gospel of John, before he washed those feet, it says this. 
knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God, he got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, he poured the water, and he washed 24 feet. And he wiped them dry with a towel. Not trying to earn God's favor by any stretch, but out of the identity of who he was and where he was going. And so, again, if anyone ever abounded in the work of the Lord, it was the Lord. I think the lesson of His life for us would be, whether we think of His life privately before ministry or His life in three and a half years of public ministry, the lesson to you and me would be this, laziness is a sin. It is a sin just like hate, just like lust, just like greed, just like adultery. Laziness is a sin, and as a sin, it needs to be confessed and it needs to be repented of. Jesus would teach us this. The book of Proverbs would teach us this. Most, but a lot of the Bible would teach us this. And then number four, the one who forgives his executioners, I think can teach you and me a thing or two about loving witness, can he not? I mean, they're nailing him to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Says it out loud because it's part of his loving witness to these Roman soldiers. Father, forgive them. The indication is he forgave them. He was in the process of forgiving them. And he's just asking the Father to join him in forgiving them. Think about his loving witness. In the context of the moral gap between Jesus and everyone he witnessed to. See, you and I, we don't have that. We don't have this great moral gap, moral chasm between us and who we witness to. Right? Sinners to sinners. In one case, saved. In the other case, hope they will be saved. But Jesus has this infinite moral gap between Himself and everyone He interacts with. And that, to me, heightens and illuminates the loving part of His witness. He welcomed people. He persuaded, provoked, and proclaimed. He questioned and he answered. He crossed the street and he crossed the sea. He invited people to himself and he accepted invitations. He went to dinner parties. He went to weddings. He went to wedding receptions. He would be found time and again with sinners and with tax collectors. Part of his loving witness came down to this. He did not care what religious people thought of him. Did not care what they thought of him or where he went or who he was seen with. And neither should we. You see, pleasing man isn't the agenda. Loving witness is. Jesus teaches us this. He touched unclean lepers. He conversed with a Samaritan woman of questionable reputation. He accepted hospitality of a hated IRS super agent. None of these people were good for his reputation. He didn't care about his reputation, if you will. He loved the man who would deny him and he befriended his betrayer. He gave him the seat of honor at the Last Supper. He ate his last meal with the man who would stab him in the back and betray him with a kiss. This was his friend. Michael Card sings it well. 
Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Jesus knew Judas would betray him and never expose him to the rest of the gang. That is loving witness. And so Jesus worshipped and walked and worked and witnessed. But this is more than a history lesson. The Spirit of Christ lives in us. The Spirit of this Christ lives in us. And so we too can worship and walk and work and witness. It's not our own strength. It's not our own ability. It's not our own power. It's the Spirit of Christ animating and flowing and living His life out through us. This very same person. And as we do that, we will have the same result that He had as He did it. The result in His life was simply this. He glorified God by making disciples of Himself. Right? He did. And he glorified God. And when his life was over, there was about 120 of them, believing men and believing women, who were gathered in the upper room. They were there after his ascension back to heaven, and they were awaiting a promise for him to fulfill. The promise that he would send his spirit in a unique way to empower them for this very same mission. Their mission? We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And now here we are, 1,988 years later, and the purpose for our existence has not shifted one degree to the left or to the right. It is identical to that same mission of the 120 in the upper room. So what is our purpose for existence? We exist to make His name famous. We exist to make God's glory magnified. To draw attention to the fame and worth and glory and greatness of our triune God. We breathe to make God look good. To make God famous. To make a name for Himself, not a name for ourselves. People of the world live to make a name for themselves. Christians live to make a name for Christ. We are little Christ. We belong to Him. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Because of Your loving kindness and because of Your truth. We don't have any truth. And we don't have any loving kindness. It's His and His alone. And because He is so full of grace and compassion and faithful truth, because of that, the psalmist wrote, Not to us, not to the people of God, O Lord, but to Your name give glory, give fame. And what name is that? On this side of the cross, it's this name. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the name of our triune God as He's revealed Himself. God says to the Son, the literal Son, Shine all the time and bring light and heat to my creatures, to my creation. And God says to us, Shine all the time 
and bring light and heat to my image bearers. The light we bring is the light of understanding, the knowledge of God through the face and person and work of Christ. That's the light we are to bring to the world, understanding of the gospel. And the heat we bring to the world is an affection and a warmth for the truth. So just as the sun in the sky is to shine all the time, so you and I are to shine all the time bringing understanding and affection for the truth to the world. Especially and particularly God's image bearers. We are the light of the world. We are because the light of the world dwells within us. We are inhabited by pure light, by living water, by the Son of God Himself through His Spirit. And so Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, Let your light shine before men in such a way, that always stops me, in such a way, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He is invisible. He is far away in heaven. They cannot see Him. How do they see Him? By our light shining in such a way that they see our good works. Our good works are not to be hidden from the world. They're not to be shuffled off into a corner somewhere. They're to be done visibly and publicly, not for self-glorification, but so that our lives point people to the Father in heaven. And we glorify Him in that way. I believe that we do this best in this age by making disciples of His only Son. We are in the church age. Started at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It will end with the rapture, which could be any moment. And that is called the church age. It is the age of grace. It is what Paul called the day of salvation. See, the world is going to be judged. And God is going to pour out seven years of tribulation on this earth. Both judging His people Israel and the entire world while saving multitudes. And it's like this judgment is the wrath of God. And it's like a roaring river. And it's being held back right now by this dam of grace. It is just being held back for 2,000 years in the age of the church. As God saves sinners. And we're in that age. When God is not exercising His wrath and judgment, but He has held it back for a season so that we might make disciples of His only Son. And one day He's going to open all the floodgates and it will be too late. And so we are to make disciples of God's one and only Son. We are to live and say that Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies. Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies. That's the message this world needs to hear. This world has a sin problem and it has an idolatry problem. They're one and the same. And they need to hear that only Jesus saves and only Jesus satisfies. Nothing else will do it and no one else can do it. He has the answer for every malady of the human heart. He is the answer for every malady of the human heart. Jesus is the answer. Why is this? Because all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The fame of God. The wonder of God. The majesty of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Infinitely short. 
And the wages of this sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and if not dealt with, eternal death, eternal separation from the goodness and blessing of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin, even one sin, is death. It's a punishment that God hands out Himself. But God, but God, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. He died our death. See, the wages of sin is death. Christ died for us. He died our death. He took our place. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved from the wrath of God. You'll be saved from the presence, power, and penalty of sin. You'll be justified, sanctified, and glorified one day. You'll be saved, gloriously saved. You'll be forgiven of all your sins. You'll be washed clean. You'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to make some new disciples. Because some people are in here this morning and they love the world and they're followers of the world and they're actually bound up and belong to Satan. And you need to come out from the world and come out from your sin and begin to follow Christ. You've learned the world's ways long enough. You've listened to its music. You've loved its TV shows. You've, you've basked in its movies. You've sought its glory. You've sought its pleasures. You've sought its satisfaction long enough. It's time to leave that and begin to follow Christ. Where Jesus saves and Jesus satisfies. He is both Lord, Savior, and treasure for the trusting soul. This is what it means to be a disciple. is to repent of your sins and to trust Christ. To begin to follow Him on the Calvary road. To take up your cross and follow Jesus. To count the cost. To count the cost of losing everything for Christ. That you might gain everything through Christ. This is the good news. I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, beloved, the Great Commission is about joy in heaven. That's how we are to think about it. That's how we are to live. We exist then to glorify God, not man, because God is infinitely more glorious than any man. He is brighter than 10,000 suns. He is more majestic than 10,000 solar systems. He is better and more satisfying than anything our minds can even conceive. All flesh is like grass. God is like eternal, immutable, glorious. He is unfathomable, incomparable, and unimaginable. He is uncontainable, unpredictable, and untamable. He is holy, holy, holy. Everything else is a dumpster fire by comparison. It is a sewage pit on fire by comparison. Everything else, nothing compares to our unimaginable, incomparable God. You see, it was, Jesus was actually serious 
when He said, I am the life. Most Christians can quote John 14, 6 like in our sleep. But I wonder how many Christians really sink into John 14, 6. He said that to the disciples. That's for us. That's John 14. The audience is the 11. I am the way, the truth, the life. It's only living water that can quench the thirst of our souls. And it's only this physician that can make us whole. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I want to close with this salient reminder. Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 28, very familiar words, listen to them. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So let's just marinate in that for a moment. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All sovereignty, all power, all rights, all authority, all judgment authority, all salvation authority. Authority over every soul and over every square inch of the universe has been given, meaning came from the Father, delegated to Christ, and it knows no boundaries. In heaven and on earth. And on the basis of that, he says, on the basis of this sheer sovereignty of the Son, he says to the church, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." It is not called the average commission or the great suggestion. It is the great commission. And it stands. It's actually the climax of one of the greatest and most important books in the Bible. We're going to start that book on December the 2nd. That is the Gospel of Matthew. And as we go through it line by line and word by word and chapter by chapter, I want you to have in the back of your mind that the climax of the book of Matthew is the Great Commission. Everything is building to this moment. Everything is is pointing to this great moment. When Jesus, the resurrected Christ, before His ascension, would tell His followers... Their standing order until the rapture. So important. These are the last words of God's Son on earth. And this is the standing mandate until He calls us home. And we will carry out this great commission through the power of the One who will never leave us nor forsake us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We will carry it out then by the power of the Gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the last Gentile has been safely harvested, the Father will turn to Jesus and say, Son, go get your bride. Until then, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ.
Father, give us the grace, the energy, the motivation, the opportunity, and the perseverance to do this until the end of the age. We thank you that we never go alone. We never cross the street or cross the sea alone. That every believer on the planet in this moment has this promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, we pray today that you would open blind eyes, crack open hard hearts, and that you today would grant faith and repentance, drawing to yourself a lost sheep, that all the children of God might be gathered in. For who knows, Lord, it could be the last Gentile and then the rapture. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.